We return today to the book of 1 Corinthians. We continue on in chapter 4. If you find your way there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's seek the Lord's aid as we come to the Word. And Lord, that Word we have sung, we have found great hope in the songs that we have lifted to You in praise today. We thank You that You have allowed us to journey thus far in this book and just pray that by the Spirit of God that You would help us to understand and see what is intended for us as a church here in this passage before us. We thank You for Your goodness to us in Christ that we have the freedom to gather in this way. We pray for those who do not know Christ and ask that through careful attention, that you, as You would guide and steer them, that You might open their eyes to see what they cannot and to value what they do not. I pray, Father, that together we would be able to labor in the Scriptures today in a way that is sanctifying. And we ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. One of the greatest joys in life is the birth of a child. Yes, birth of a child, like all joys, has temptations. That lurk, parents of a newborn can yield to child idolatry or self-reliance, selfish pride and more. But all of that said and understood, holding a healthy newborn child in your arms can be a wonder that defies description and comparison. But that heartwarming wonder does not last. Somewhere, very soon, that beautiful little child learns how to marshal the word no. She refuses to nap. He refuses potty training. They delight at launching food or screaming at a sibling. You still love them. There's still those moments that are so endearing. But it doesn't all last. Then come the teen years, a stretch of life that brings a few parent-child storms, if not a series of hurricanes. And in the intensity of such storms, godly parents find themselves desperately longing to communicate and to commend truth and wisdom and loving counsel to their children. They want to talk about how life works what they see, what, is, what God has taught them, the experiences of life, and they're pleading with their child to understand. But from the other direction, teens are tempted to dismiss that counsel, if not despise it. Sometimes they reject parental counsel for no other reason than it comes from mom and dad. But very often a teen is also responding to influences from outside the home that seem far more attractive. Godly parents urge a child to embrace holy living, to honor authority, to take responsibility, to work diligently, to set godly priorities and the like, but the child can, all of this can appear dull, unattractive compared to what is popular, to what is fun, to what is liberating or exciting, to what I want to do and what I want to be. And so comes the relational tug of war. 
that probably every one of us knows in this room on some level. As the Apostle Paul thinks about an analogy of how to talk about his troubled relationship with the Corinthian church, this is where he lands. It's like a parent-child relationship where there is great tension and conflict. He is longing and pleading with them to understand things from Christ's perspective, and they're very enamored with ideas and concepts and life outside of Christ. This analogy of the parent-child relationship rises to the surface later in the text that we will look at. But let's notice it now so that we get the flavor of it. We see it at its heart. Notice verse 14 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now we'll get into this, but they're kind of nose to nose. At least he's nose to nose with them in this letter. But he says, I'm talking to you as my beloved children. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says, imitate me. And look then at verse 21. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness. He wasn't expecting a lightning strike. Rod is a parental term. It's the rod of correction. More on that as we end this time together. But seeing that is important to understanding what's going on here in chapter 4. Many of the Corinthian church members were enamored with these traveling speakers that would come into town the traveling speakers of their day that took pride in popular presentations of human wisdom. They were bringing the world's priorities and practices then into the church. And the result was a worldly orientation that fostered division among them as believers. And it also caused them to view the gospel in a fairly dim light. Due to these false priorities, many in the Corinthian church had come to find the Apostle Paul, frankly, kind of boring. In fact, the way that he taught and the content of his teaching was somewhat embarrassing to them. He was so out of touch with the ways of the world that that attracted them. Paul just did not understand the trends of the day or tap the triumphant philosophies of the popular teachers that now, as they had become Christians, they were molding and twisting the Christian truth to fit the world around them. Now Paul's been absent for a long time and they just think, you know what, I think we can just dismiss him. He's irrelevant. It's a major issue. Chapter 1, verse 10 All the way through chapter 4, that's what he's talking about. He's correcting them as a parent might correct a child where you're both coming at things from very different angles and he's trying to bring them back here not just to his way but to follow Christ in truth and to know that they are in danger of losing the church. This church is about to crumble. The foundation could be lost. And he pleads with them to see what is happening. 
He cannot stand back and watch this. This isn't about Paul and Apollos and Peter and these divisions ultimately. It's about a compromise of the gospel by bringing the world into the church and standing on that foundation. We have to get this fixed, he says. So in verses 8 through 10, Paul rebukes the arrogance of the Corinthian church with a string of sarcastic statements. In a manner of speaking, Paul takes up the role of a, plea, of a parent that's pleading with a stiff-necked teenager who thinks he or she has all the answers of life, needs no counsel. They are dismissing him. And now he gets right back into their face, and this is pretty intense stuff here that we're looking at in chapter 4. And we can draw a couple of principles from this passage, from these sections, for our own lives. That first principle is that we must align our lives with that of our despised Savior. Here's the philosophical distinction between them, the tension that was between them. And the call to us, Eden Baptist Church, is to make sure that we are aligning our lives with that of a despised Savior. Verse Chapter, eight, or chapter 4, verse 8. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. That, my friends, is sarcasm. Real, stiff sarcasm. He says, already you have all you want. He has eating in mind here. They are satiated. They, are, they, they, they sense no need for the solid food of the gospel. They do not hunger for righteousness. They're already full. Worldly wisdom was satiating their spiritual hunger like downing an entire box of candy. They were full. Already you've become rich. They do not see themselves as needy and dependent upon the Lord. They are arrogantly self-sufficient, satisfied by aligning their lives to worldly ways. And you notice the phrase already. It's not a throwaway phrase. Why already? The Corinthians held to what we call an over-realized eschatology on some level. And it's hard to dice it all up and understand all of it from our uh, angle from so many years removed but an over-realized eschatology, that's a fancy word, but the Greek philosophers taught citizens of Corinth how to overcome the fallen world. They wanted to distance themselves from the physical world, how to enter into the realm of thought and human reason to escape this world, and some in the church were twisting Christian doctrine into such a philosophy. The result was that they saw themselves as living a higher life, a spiritual life free of the troubled trappings of this broken world. Paul sees too much of this, what's already in their thinking, and not enough of the not yet in their theology. So we say over-realized eschatology. We're talking about too much of the already that has been secured in this life and not yet understanding how much is yet to come. That's their error. We see it today in a different way, but in those churches that say that following Christ will lead to healing. Always. In fact, there are some churches we know of, we've met people who say, if you obey Jesus, you won't die. 
never really works out all that well. But uh, that, that's the teaching that some get so far into that. They say, you won't die if you do right. If you do right, God will pile you full of money. But we will never get sick again. And we will have riches like we can't imagine in eternity. You see it. Too much of the already, not enough of the not yet. This is where the Corinthians were in a different way. And he continues here with his sarcasm. Without us, you have become kings. Quite apart from any partnership with us as apostles, I think he's saying, you already reign as spiritual kings. Paul adds to this third-fold, this threefold string of sarcastic rebukes, this biting aside, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I think he's saying, would to God that you did reign in Christ's kingdom today. We could join you. But the problem is you think you reign in Christ's kingdom already. So, congratulations, he says. First, Paul's not buying what they're selling. Second, notice the contrast of this. You are satiated. You are rich. You rule in your own way of thinking. Think of chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, the apostles, me as a teacher, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. What a contrast. So he's, he's setting this up. He's setting them up. In a, in a sense, then, do you see it? It's like a, a, a parent in a row with a teenager saying something sarcastically like, well, I'm glad you know everything there is to know about life. If only I had your wisdom. It's, it's pure sarcasm. And that's what Paul's using here as, as a tool to get them to think and to see themselves. We as those who brought the gospel to you, are servants of Christ. You guys are all kings already. Ruling, rich, and satiated. Reminds you that passage in Revelation. You think you're rich, but you're poor and naked and blind. That's what he's saying underneath the sarcasm. But from sarcasm to instruction, Paul now contrasts the haughty pride of the Corinthians displayed with the example of the apostles of Christ. The the pride that they displayed, note the contrast here now in verse 9. For I think, it's my conviction, that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Oh, the context here. we got to make the bridge. It's really important. But they had this, this was just part of their thinking and their mindset, so different from our day. But a victorious Roman general would ride into the city at the head of a long parade of his soldiers returning from battle. And what's the city doing? The citizens have gathered to this thoroughfare. Many times in those ancient cities, one major uh, way, one major path. And they're gathered on either side, cheering and celebrating the victory of this great general. And all the soldiers marching behind. It was an impressive scene. It was meant to be impressive. 
What came at the end of the parade? The end of this, that they called it a triumph. At the end of the parade came all the captives. In chains, many times bloodied, dirtied, looking terrible. And what did the citizens do? Derision. Spewing hatred. Yelling at them from the street as they passed. And then that procession would go to the amphitheater, to the stadium there in that Roman city. And there those captors would be executed in front of everyone, to the cheering crowds. It's a bloody world. But they loved it. Paul says, y'all are like kings. You're riding at the front of the line. I'm with those captives at the end. That's where we are as apostles. You, you want to find Apollos and Paul and Peter and those who proclaim the gospel to you? We're at the back. We're the ones on our way to getting executed. The contrast could not be more stark. You're at the front. You're in the box seats as a king, basking in the victory of this army because you are worldly-minded. As Christ's apostles, and here again, I think including informally Apollos, we're at the back of the parade, we're among the outcasts, the watching angels and the crowds in different ways viewing us, seeing where we stand. What's Paul saying? You've got everything upside down. You are following a Savior who said, take up your cross and follow me to death. So you need a radical reconfiguring of perspective. Get off your thrones and join us at the back of the line with the despised. March to the place of execution with Christ at the end of the line. Yes, indeed, Paul continues sarcastically, we fall very far behind your expectations right now. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in dispute. You kings in that box seat watching as we walk at the end of the line, ready to be executed as the captives. Yes, you are the rich you are the powerful. You are the satiated. Think of this and the irony of it. You the wise, we the weak, you the strong, you the people of honor. In light of what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You're at the back of the line, walking with the captives, You've come to Christ as Savior, and now you're trying to take your seat in the king's box seats. You've got this all wrong.
Verse 11, to the present hour, in contrast, we hunger. We thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. To the present hour. You see the already that we looked at before? Here it is again. To the present hour. There are several indications of this over-realized eschatology here. In other words, they saw themselves as already delivered by Christ from the broken world in which they lived. Against this position, Paul says, to this very hour, you think you're already there. But right now, at this point in our lives, here's who we are. We are those who hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and must labor with our hands to the present hour. We work with our hands. It was deemed below the dignity of a Roman citizen to do menial work. That was the job of slaves. To do mundane menial work would have embarrassed the Corinthian believers when they looked at their teacher. I mean, you think of it, these traveling sophists that come to down to town that are the rock stars of the culture. And you are living in a culture where the goal of every Roman citizen is never to do anything of menial labor. And here is the Apostle Paul. Hey, come and hear this preacher. And during the week, he's working with his hands. He's among the despised, the outcasts. Yes, that's who we are, Paul says. In light of this, of the suffering that they endure for the cause of the gospel, the Corinthians need to consider this and radically change their priorities of life, the way that they are oriented. It is embarrassing. It is a position where we are going to be despised. But their consciences had to be asking them, when Paul says this is where we are, what are we missing? Why does Paul glory in suffering? I say glory because of how Paul and his fellow apostles responded to their ill treatment. Verse 12, middle of the verse, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. They followed Christ's example and Christ's instruction, who said in Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. That's not the world's way. That's Christ's way. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the Christ we follow, says Paul. This is the radically countercultural approach of our lives in comparison with the world that we live in. And as a spiritual father, then Paul pleads with his children in Corinth to repent, to recalibrate their lives to this God honoring perspective. Now, what does our world prize? Much like theirs, very similarly, our world prizes ambition and power. Success, wealth, self-protection, popularity, and ease. That's the game the Corinthians were playing, and that's the game we can play. Paul is calling upon us all to so treasure Christ that we are liberated from holding on to these worldly priorities. We hold them very lightly. 
to take, for instance, wealth or importance or ease. These aren't evil things in and of themselves, but they're not big things to us in Christ. They're things we happily give away in order to follow Him. So Paul says to them, I will not live for fame or wealth or pleasure because I have these infinitely supplied in union with my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, verse 13, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all, the refuse of all things. Contrast this description with the high priority the Corinthians were placing on polished, self-promoting, truth-bending, rhetorical masterminds of their day. We are once again then reminded that we cannot be popular in two places. You're going to be with the cheering crowds and the victorious soldiers, or you're going to be at the back of the line with the despised. You've got to pick your place. And you can't be popular here and in glory. If your citizenship is in heaven, and you live well enough to prove it, this world will not warmly receive you. At least not consistently. And the more you speak for Christ, the more you proclaim the truth of God, the more hostility we will invite. This is no light letter, is it? I mean, the the sarcasm of it, the confrontation of it, to completely recalibrate the way that they're understanding the Christian life, it's not a light letter. And so I I see it again as as he moves to these images of, this imagery of the family. It's like a parent saying in a row with a teen, so you know everything now. I wish I was as smart as you. You have it all figured out. You're doing a lot better than your parents. That kind of sarcasm is here. But like a good father in such a conflict, Paul now decelerates and warmly appeals to the church. So there's the tension of the conflict. But now he backs away and we really see his big and gracious heart coming out. And a second principle emerges from verses 14 and following, and that is that we must respond to the ministry of shepherds who thus align their lives. We must align our lives with that of our despised Savior, and we must respond to the ministry of shepherds who thus align their lives. As Paul closes out the appeal that he began in in chapter 1, verse 10, his tone now is gentle, it is kind, it is loving, it is pastoral, it is fatherly. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I rebuke you, I chide you, I reason with you because I love you. He does not want to provoke them to bitterness or enrage them to use words that just create a war. He loves them. They're dear to Him. God used Paul to proclaim the Gospel to them. They responded. They were born from above. Now He has a deep affection for them. They were in the spiritual realm His children. He held them, so to speak, as infants, and He loved them immensely. 
This is why he's so concerned about where they're headed and the voices they're listening to. So he longs for them to grow and he will risk even alienating them to stand against this folly. But they are his beloved children at the end of the day and he is their father. Verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Guides, again, culture, we miss it. But for them, there were individuals assigned to oversee usually a young boy's life. The wealthy would, t- would take on this slave and assign this slave, watch this guy. Make sure he gets to school. Make sure he does his homework. Make sure he gets to bed on time. Make sure that he learns the rudiments of behavior. That was the guide. He said, but that guide's not a father. You have a lot of guides seeking to lead you in the way, but I'm your father. I'm the one that brought the gospel to you. Now, my relationship then with you is unique, but quick time out here. Some people have taken this verse, verse 15, to say that if I lead someone to Christ, I am called by God to disciple them. That is not the case. That may be a wonderful opportunity that someone has in that situation. You lead someone to the Lord and you're able to disciple them and guide them forward. But it's not a necessity, not an obedience to this verse. Circumstances, not this verse, must dictate that. But back to the main point. Paul taught them the pure gospel truth, and it is vital that they heed that truth and that they heed his call now upon their life. But truth in the biblical sense is never mere doctrinal formulation. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Listen to what I'm teaching, but follow the way that I live. We know Paul means imitate me as I follow Christ. He's not saying follow me against Apollos. That would be in conflict with everything he's been saying. I gave you the milk of the gospel that led to your conversion. Now follow me in applying the gospel in every aspect of your lives. And that was a bold ask. It was a call for them and for us to turn our backs on the worldly demands of ambition and power and success and wealth and self-protection and popularity and ease. It's a call to serve a despised Savior to endure with Him the shame and the suffering that this world will mete out. It's an away game for us. And Paul says, join me in the away game. Join me at the end of the line. Join me with those headed to execution in this life. I've explained how to live in this world in keeping with Jesus' call upon our lives. You need to calibrate to that, not to the world. Verse 17, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. It's his ways and it's his teaching. And it's consistent with every church. In fact, we read that passage in 1 Thessalonians here today and you just see the very same themes coming out. I'm your father, I'm proclaiming the gospel. I have brought you life in Christ. I've presented that gospel which has the power to save. You've responded to it. Let's walk in it. He says, this is, 
Corinth, you're not the world. You're one church in the world. And there's a whole lot of the world in you. But there are churches in this world that are heeding what I'm saying. They're aligning their lives to the teaching of the despised Savior. Join with us. We don't know the timing or the details of Timothy's visit to them, but it certainly indicated Paul was very concerned for them to send his delegate Timothy there to try to right the ship. To this point in the text, Paul has not specifically called anyone out, but in verse 18 we get about as close as he does. He says there, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. He's calling some people in the church who are arrogant. Here he kind of lets the lid off entirely. They are working to collect you in teams. They are tapping into the philosophies of this world. They are here in this church. And I'm going to find out what kind of power they have. Now, we can really misread that. Think of it contextually. Is Paul saying, I want to find out what kind of worldly power they have? what kind of influence they have, whether they can fight with me. Of course not. Think of the power that he's talking about in light of what we have seen previously. It is in the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel that is that power. So he's saying, I want to find out, are these people just rhetoricians? These these arrogant people who are opposing me in the church, they know how to talk. Are they indwelt by the Spirit of God? Do they have that spiritual zeal? Are they authentic? What's he saying? They're not. And I'm going to come and expose that. And that's not going to be a pretty visit. I'm going to find out these arrogant people of whether they really know the Lord is part of what he's saying. 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That is in the power of the Spirit of God to convert and to transform. So what do you want? Verse 20, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Again, the parental rod, what we would call a switch. A thin, flexible, lengthy, wooden tool of correction. Do you want me to come as your father into the church with a switch? Or can I please come in love and a spirit of gentleness? It's a call for them to change course. Change your orientation. Align your lives with the despised Savior and follow us as the apostles of Christ at the end of the line. That's the call. And nothing less than the existence of the church rests on their response. This appeal of Paul to the Corinthians reminds us also as believers that we must count the cost, does it not? We can always choose to calibrate our personal lives. We can choose to calibrate the life of this assembly 
to the priorities of our culture. And a lot of churches demonstrate that. I hope we don't, ever. But as a church, we can calibrate our ministry to prioritize health. What's not to like about that? And wealth, and ease, and entertainment to gain the world's approval. We can mold and twist the Bible to promote what the world says is the good life. Or we can follow our crucified Savior outside the camp of man's approval. And if we desire to do that, the calibration of our life together as a church must prioritize the faithful teaching of the Word and call and the call to holy living as believers. It must include that in every class down to the youngest and through to our adult courses. This needs to be how we calibrate to the teaching revealed in Scripture. To be true to that. It means that a message that synchronizes with man's kingdom, that tells people what they want to hear, will not surface in our assembly at any level of instruction or at any place of practice. This does not mean that we calibrate our church's life to whatever makes us most miserable. It does mean we understand we are in a war and that we are not home yet. You get a teenager that's really struggling to follow mom and dad's direction and that might be what they think. Why do you always choose the most miserable path? And what is a parent, a godly parent saying? We never do. We never do. When we follow Christ. But you got to understand where we stand. We're in the parade, way at the back. So, imagine that, like a despised, captured soldier of Rome. You're marching there at the end of the triumph on your way to execution and the crowds are spitting at you and throwing things at you and cursing and throwing dust up in the air over you, doing everything they can to make your life miserable on the way to the stadium where you're going to meet your death. And an official comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, renounce your loyalty to your country right here, right now, and we will free you to become a citizen of Rome. And you respond two ways. Number one, I am not going to betray my country. But number two, what you don't understand is coming over that mountain right there is my army, a rescuing army that is going to come and wipe out everyone and free me and reward me as they clean me up and take me home. I don't know precisely when that army's going to arrive. You're thinking this in your mind. I don't know precisely when that's going to happen. But it's going to happen. So if you look at me right now, where I stand at the end of this line, it's ugly. 
The world's against me. I'm, I'm not choosing what's most miserable. I'm in a position that is despised, but I'm exactly where I want to be because of what's coming. And if you gather with us today and you know that you're separated from Christ, you have not trusted Him as your Savior, in that picture, you're on the side. You're with the crowd. You're really safe right now. And you can even speak words of ridicule against God's people. As things stand, this world can offer you passing pleasures and temporary protections. You can raise your voice with the crowd and enjoy this sunny day. But your celebration day will come to a swift end. Christ will come again. The rejected the despised, the crucified Savior, that's not the end of the count. He rose from the dead in victory. He ascended to heaven's throne where He reigns today and intercedes for His people and where He promises to return and to deliver us eternally. So you have to choose your side. And if you're just looking around at this world, you're with the cheering crowds in the sun and everything seems good, for now, you're not choosing the best way. You're not choosing the easy way, if you want to think of it that way. And now, right where you stand among the cheering crowds opposed to Christ, you cannot secure forgiveness of sin. You cannot secure a clear conscience. You cannot secure renewal of spirit, true joy, and the assurance of an eternal home with God. So if you choose to stand with a mocking crowd, you will secure their passing provisions and the delights of this world. But in doing so, you will sacrifice citizenship with Christ forever. He's coming again. He will set all things right. And those who walk among the despised at the end of the triumphant parade will be liberated. So choose carefully. If you're comfortable getting from this world all that you can get out of it and refusing to trust in the provision that Christ has made for your salvation, then know that that liberation day for God's people will be the day of eternal ruin for you. The table's have already been turned. But the realization is not yet. It's coming. And for those of us who have put our trust in Christ as Savior, press on with the despised Savior. Do not allow this world to lure you and to pull you away into its ways. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. This is what the Spirit is teaching us in this assembly. Stay with Christ. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Father, for the correction of this passage. We, in some ways, are awed by it as we think of how bold Paul was but also to realize that in that boldness there was an intensity that was utterly essential. 
we can lose the gospel as a church. We can stop preaching the word and being faithful to the text of Scripture. We can stop pursuing the life that would be pleasing to Jesus. I pray, Father, as a church, that we take this to heart, that it would just be a checkup for us to remain on track and to continue to calibrate our lives rightly to your word, to your truth, to the way that Christ would lead us. And Lord, as an assembly, we are reminded of the words of Jesus that turn the world on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for those who hunger for righteousness. For all the things that our world despises has no time for, we praise you for the privilege of standing with the despised Christ. I pray that we'd not ridicule this world, but that we'd appeal to it. And even as we continue to labor, as we did last Lord's Day evening tonight, help us to understand how people think and why they find in the world such enamoring ideas. Lord, teach us to know our world, to proclaim the gospel, and to rejoice in what is. Sins forgiven, a clear conscience, the joy of obedience to you, the wisdom and skill of living in accordance to your word. What is, we rejoice. But we also rejoice as a church today in what is to come. And in that coming kingdom where Christ reigns and sin is no more, we will find joys at your right hand forevermore. And I pray that those joys would ever be in our sights. Teach us to focus there as we walk at the back of the line. Teach us to focus over that hill from which our Savior will come and liberate us for eternity. It's no choice. But we thank you that you've opened our eyes to see it. That you've enabled us to make it. And we pray in behalf of those who are not yet there. Help them to see that Christ is coming. In his name we pray. Amen.